Life's too short. Life's too damn short. So, eat everything. Try anything. Exercise. Experience all that life has to offer. Here's exercise physiologist, medical journalist, and healthy talk host, Melanie Cole, MS. Well, today's conversation is going to be so interesting. And if you're like me and you're a woman of a certain age, your body is changing. You're not sure what to expect on any given day. And that is the lovely time of change called menopause. And we're talking today with Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. She's a clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Minkin, starting with the fact that I am now right in the throes of it, as are most of my girlfriends. I'm 55 years old, so I started, I think, a little bit late. What is happening in our bodies during menopause? What absolutely is happening right now in my body? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Melanie, for asking me to be with you and discuss the most interesting topic in the world, at least as far as I'm concerned. So thanks, thanks. Um, And basically, menopause can be very simply described as the pooping out of the ovaries. That's pure and simple what's happening. Our ovaries are stopping working. And indeed, of course, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past in previous shows, is that this process doesn't go overnight. It's not like you go to bed one night premenopausal and you wake up the next morning and the ovaries are totally shot and you're postmenopausal. There is this gradual time frame of the change of the gradual decline of function, and that's called perimenopause, and we've talked about that a little bit before. But indeed, when you go that full year without a period, okay, we're talking about for ladies who still have the uterus in there, that a full year without a period, that means you've been through menopause and basically at this point things should be over as far as much ovarian active activity. Um, Now, of course, the ovaries can still do a little bit and indeed occasionally somebody will even get a period 13, 14 months after that last period. But when you go over a year without a period and you do start doing some bleeding, we ask you to check in with your gynecological health care provider because we want to make sure there's nothing funky going on. What are the signs and symptoms we're starting? And is there a way to actually diagnose it? Is is there a hormone level you can check that says, yep, you know what, now you actually are in menopause, you are beginning the process. And what are some of the symptoms so a woman knows? I mean, our periods could be irregular on any given time. Sure, that's absolutely correct. And indeed, menstrual irregularities are really common. For example, women in their 20s, for example, a woman who develops an eating disorder, her periods may go crazy. Or if she starts exercising like mad, or she has problems with her thyroid, um, all of those can contribute to funky periods, as can certain medications. So there are a lot of things, indeed, that can give you a funky period. Part of what guides us in general is age. The average age at menopause in the United States is 51 and change, 51 to 52 years old. However, women can go through menopause as early as 35 or as late as 60. So anybody in that range is certainly a possibility. But if somebody starts doing this funky period business and she's in her mid to late 40s, the most likely explanation is going to be something related to the the perimenopausal trend. Transition. Now, there are a lot of other symptoms that accompany this for many, many women. And by the way, I also want to clarify, even before we talk about symptoms, that some women get no symptoms whatsoever. Some women don't even get funky periods. They'll just stop having a period and that'll be it and they'll never get another one. And okay, that happens, but that's unusual. The most common symptoms that women complain of, particularly in this country, are hot flashes, 
night sweats, and sleeping disturbances. Those are probably the most common symptoms. But another thing that's really interesting to me about menopause is that, indeed, symptoms can vary from group of people to group of people. So, for example, one symptom that women get in this country, to be sure, is achiness. It's generalized like an arthritic-type sensation, but it's not super common in the U.S. However, if you look at folks in the Philippines, that's the most common thing they complain about over there is the significant achiness that they get. So I think that's really fascinating, too. Um, Otherwise, also, even in the United States, different groups of people seem to have different prevalence of symptoms. So, for example, in the United States, African-American women seem to suffer from the worst hot flashes, with Caucasian women in the middle, and women who are of Asian extraction seem to have the least issues with hot flashes. We don't know why, but we know it does happen like that. That's interesting, and I wonder about the role of diet and such. Now, let's go into symptoms, because I do want to ask you about special health concerns and sexual concerns, but before I do that, there's symptoms, as you're mentioning. I am not somebody who has hot flashes. I get a little warm Mm -hmm. flushes. Really, that's kind of what I call them, but I am having sleep disturbances like I've never had in my life, and I get night sweats. And I just want to throw the blankets off and step outside. Now, the sleep disturbances seem to be the most bothersome for me personally, just because they affect every other part of your life. I was going to look to melatonin. What do we do? Well, melatonin, it does help some women. Now, the other confusing thing with the sleep disturbances, and you're absolutely right, it does affect everything about your body. Because women regularly ask me, you know, gee, I'm feeling depressed or irritable or my cognitive function is off. I'm forgetting things, stuff like that. And the question is, is that a direct effect of the menopause and the loss of hormones? Or is it secondary to sleep loss? Because, yeah, hey, that's my question. It's sleep. You know, you don't feel good, or as I tell my residents, you know, you may feel like kicking the dog or something, and that's not a good thing to do. So the key thing is that lack of sleep can really profoundly affect everything. Although there is some evidence to suggest that sometimes that the loss of hormones in and of itself can be contributing to these problems as well. And getting a good night's sleep is key. Well, it certainly is. And I'll tell you that as a generally upbeat and happy person, there have been days recently where I have felt blue, missed my son in college Mm -hmm. more than I ever have, anxiety. But I'm chalking Mm -hmm. some of it up to what's going on in the country and things and stuff. But one of the things I've noticed, along with this anxiety, this rising sense of I'm not sure why I'm feeling so anxious or panicky, is that my heart rate has gone up and my blood pressure, and I'm in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. And so those are the more scary symptoms, Dr. Minkin. Mm -hmm. What about those kinds of things? When do you, like, see a cardiologist and say, am I developing heart disease, or is this a result of my menopause? Well, that's another excellent question, and the answer is some women do report palpitations, okay, as a, you know, legitimate type, you know, issue. And for some women, that's almost the equivalent of a hot flash. And Part of the reason we think these happen, now we, we don't even know the mechanism of a hot flash, to be honest. I can tell you that, despite all of the women having gazillions of hot flashes out there. Um, we have some theories as far as why things happen, but one of the things that is involved, we think, is the release of adrenaline, you know, norepinephrine, whatever you want to call it. And that that, of course, can lead to the hot flash, and the actual end of the hot flash, we know. Some of these chemicals cause the blood vessels in the skin 
to dilate, you know, okay, to stretch. And indeed, blood can rush through. And what happens when blood rushes through? We get, get a sort of a shakiness. We can get a very hot sensation as you're hot-blooded, the blood's coming through. Then actually we lose heat through these blood vessels, and women can start shivering, actually. So we do see these things happening to folks. And for some women, that release of these what we call catecholamines, the adrenaline, can produce sort of a palpitation-type sensation. Now, because, and it's good we're talking during National Heart Month, very important, how uh, that Valentine's Day is coming up next week, um, that indeed women are actually even more at prey to heart disease than men. So go, go red for heart disease. This is important to think about. So if there are any questions as far as things like palpitations, I always suggest to my patients that they check in with their primary care doc, may even see a cardiologist, may do something even like a Holter monitor, check to see what's going on with the heart to make sure there's nothing structurally going on that's you know, really as far as serious palpitations. But oftentimes, some of the remedies that we use for hot flashes also can help with the sensation on the palpitations as well. Wow, that's so interesting. And so let's talk about some of those remedies. We've heard about bioidentical hormones. We've heard about bone loss and osteoporosis. I mean, now, Dr. Minkin, it's like we're at risk for every friggin' disease on the planet. And, you know, <laughs> it's like estrogen. Yeah. I mean, estrogen was sort of our protector. And now that we're not getting it anymore, do we want to mm-hmm. replace it? Or did the body get rid of our estrogen? Because physiologically and over history, that's what's supposed to happen. What do we do now? And tell us about hormone replacement. And does it put sure. us at risk for more things? Well, I, I actually am a big uh, proponent of estrogen therapy, and I'll, I'll try to uh, explain why in a couple of minutes. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned about the you know the loss of estrogen. Is that something that should happen? And this actually gets into some interesting philosophical questions. I don't know if we want to go into those. In other words, why did menopause evolve? Um, as a state of affairs, okay? And why is it sort of anthropologically good that women go through menopause, i.e. not be able to have babies anymore? And indeed, believe it or not, some of the philosophical and anthropological writings about this are, well, gee, it's good to have the grandma available. It's good to have a woman who can't have babies there to help the ladies who are having babies. And I know this sounds crazy. Some One of the famous anthropologists has written, it's good to have an older woman around who can lift the stones up for the ladies who are having babies and can't lift the stones up for the civilization. I know this sounds crazy. But anyway, um, so there are some very good arguments for why it's good to have ladies not having babies all the way through life. But be that as it may, estrogen does have a significant uh, effect on, and you named the two organ systems right off the top, who are probably the most affected by estrogen or the loss thereof. And indeed, for example, bone loss, and I know you're an excellent exercise physiology and, and teacher of this as well, that indeed exercise is terrific, you know, vitamin D, calcium, all those things are important. But estrogen does play a significant role in protecting against bone loss. And the loss of estrogen at menopause certainly leads to what we call an accelerated phase of bone loss. And we really want people to keep an eye on their, their bone density as far as what's going on. And similarly with heart disease, one thing to think about, again, February Heart Month here, that if you sit around thinking, like, how many women do I know under the age of 50 who've had heart disease? Well, we all know some, but not a heck of a lot. But if we sit and think, well, how many men under the age of 50 do we know who've had heart disease? We probably know a heck of a lot more um, because it tends to be, you know, more prevalent in, in men at the younger ages. But once we get to the older ages beyond 50, and by the way, 50 is young. 50 is very young, but it is in general heading towards the postmenopausal time. We can all certainly think of a lot of women we know with heart 
heart disease. So estrogen certainly does have some protective role there. Um, now, the main thing that happened, and, and I don't know, would you want me to go into the main study that really uh, set estrogen uh, thoughts uh, around uh, from about 18 years ago? Should we talk about that now? Well, I mean, I think that women, the studies are interesting, but I think women just want to know what you say about and what questions we sure. should ask about hormone replacement. Should we be taking sure. hormones or not? And what are bioidentical hormones? Okay, well, let's talk about that. You know, okay. And indeed, there was this big study that was designed to ask the question, does estrogen help protect women against heart disease? That was actually the question that the Women's Health Initiative was designed to study. And indeed, that study was started in the 1990s, and it was an experiment. It was what we call a prospective randomized double-blind control trial that actually women were, some women were given estrogen, and some women were given placebo pills, okay? And they were followed as far as their incidence of, you know, heart disease and other diseases, you know, what could be a complicating thing from taking the estrogen. And the people administering the drugs didn't know which one they were getting. And indeed, the study was stopped early for a couple of reasons. And the reasons that they stopped the study a bit early is they actually saw a very slight increased risk of heart disease, not the decrease that they anticipated, but they also showed a very, very slight increase in breast cancer in the women who were receiving both estrogen and progestin. And I need to clarify for our listeners at this point. If a woman has had a hysterectomy, okay, her uterus is no longer there, okay, we don't have to give her any progesterone. The women that we give progesterone to, and if you have people who are, are taking estrogen replacement therapy, if a woman has a uterus in place, we learned many years ago that if we give her just estrogen, that we can stimulate the lining of the uterus. And if we give her estrogen for many years, that we could eventually even lead to an increased risk of cancer of the lining of the uterus from the stimulation of just giving estrogen alone. So we learned that if somebody has a uterus, we need to give her something called progesterone with the estrogen to protect the lining of the uterus from getting overstimulated. And indeed, the Women's Health Initiative had two groups of women that they studied. One group of women were the women who had had a hysterectomy, so they didn't need to take any progesterone or progestin therapy, whereas the ladies who were had a uterus in place needed to take estrogen and a, a synthetic progesterone. And indeed, it was in that group of women that they saw a very, very slight increased risk of breast cancer, a very small number, but it was, it was noticeable, and that's the reason they stopped the study early. Now, the question, though, to get back back to the heart disease question, is indeed, if you looked at the women who were taking the estrogen and the progestin and stuff like that, or actually all the women in the study, that this was a group of women who weren't women going through menopause. They actually were women who, in general, had been through menopause at least a dozen years before, women who were well into the postmenopausal transition. And indeed, that's not in general where we give estrogen therapy. Uh, basically, what we had seen many years earlier, what we call observational studies, that if you looked at women who were given estrogen for the hot flashes and the night sweats and all those fabulous things, that as they were going through the transition, those were the women who really seemed to have a significant decrease in their risk of getting a heart attack. 
really, it's really significant, about a 50% reduction, very significant risk. Um, and of course, those women were getting estrogen early as they were going through the change. Whereas in the WHI study, the typical woman was somebody who had been through the hot flashes and the night sweats a dozen years before. So she was sort of done with that stuff. And it was just being used here as a preventative medicine to see if it helped reduce heart attacks. And indeed, so what they found with the study was that indeed, if you gave it much later than menopause, if you gave it, say, a dozen years or you know more after somebody's been through menopause, it really doesn't help protect the heart. Okay. The question is, does, if you give it at the same time as somebody is going through menopause, does it help protect the heart? And there is some data to suggest it does. Now, I have to clarify that the official uh, position statement of many of the official organizations in the United States is you shouldn't really take estrogen to protect the heart. Okay. Again, based on studies like the WHI, which indeed showed no protection, although albeit that was in much older women. So it's still a controversy, right? <laughs> what I can tell you. Still a controversy, but let's talk about the breast cancer data, okay? First of all, what's really interesting to note is that the women who were getting estrogen alone, just estrogen, ladies who had had a hysterectomy, actually had a slight decreased risk in breast cancer, which is very interesting. I think it's very interesting. It is. So those women never showed any increased risk of breast cancer, and they actually showed a slight decreased risk of breast cancer. Now, I'm not telling people who had a hysterectomy, go take estrogen, you know, for the protection against breast cancer. But indeed, those ladies don't have to worry about any increased risk at all. I mean, the data is pretty clear on that. Okay. So the question is, what about the data in the women for the women who took estrogen plus progestin? What is the data there? Well, a couple of things that are really interesting, again, at least to me, but I think they're really interesting, is that the increased risk was only shown after a number of years, basically after five and a half years. And many women are not taking the therapy for five and a half years. Many women are taking it to transition, uh, you know, through the perimenopausal time, okay? And so that these women indeed... Um, we're taking it, um, you know, for getting rid of the hot flashes and the night sweats and things like that. However, also, if you do get to that group of women who were taking it for a long period of time, the increased risk, although what it would call achieved statistical significance, was a very, very slight increased risk. And the other thing that I would like to comment on is that there are actually some progesterone or progestin medications which seem to have less of a risk than the particular drug that was studied in the WHI. The WHI was only looked at one drug. That was it, one drug combination. It didn't look at the myriads of other estrogens and progesterones that are available out there. So indeed, there are some progesterones that might be a little uh, kinder and gentler to use. So those are all the options that we do have. Wow, that's so much information and so great for women to hear. Now, there are, as we said, so many of these different symptoms and some women bleed. And you said you could bleed even after, you know, menopause or during perimenopause and they start bleeding. Mm -hmm. And that freaks women out, Dr. Minkin. And of we don't have a does. ton of time left, but I mean, I had it and I got put on progesterone to stop it. Mm -hmm. And then it came back mm -hmm. and then she tried another dose and then I had an ultrasound and we go through all these tests to make sure because we're terrified it's ovarian cancer or cysts or fibroids sure. or so all of these things. So when do we see our doctor? When do we worry that things that are like this are not what's supposed to be happening? Excellent question. And indeed, the first thing that I would say is if it's more than that year without a period, 
and you start bleeding, then you do want to report that to your doctor and say, hey, it's more than a year since my last period. It's time to take a look. Okay. The other time to take a look is, let's say you have, you're having some reasonably regular periods, but you're getting some bleeding between periods. It looks significant. I would talk to your doctor then. If you have a period that, you know, you have gone six weeks without a period and then you get a period two weeks later, and then you're okay, I wouldn't get excited about that in general. So it's more of the bleeding between periods bleeding after having sex, um, although that, of course, can be due to dryness, too, and we haven't talked much about dryness yet. <laughs> so, there anyway, are a lot. There um, is a lot, really. There's a lot of stuff. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff we could talk about. But anyway, so, and if there's any questions, call your doctor, your doctor, your nurse, midwife, nurse practitioner, who's ever helping you, you know, with your GYN care, um, that we can help try to figure this out. And most of the time when I do an ultrasound or even a biopsy looking for some cause of some funky bleeding, indeed it's turns out to be hormonally related and not related to some abnormality in the uterus. But we tend to be a little cautious, and I think that's pretty much a good thing to do. Okay, so I'm glad that you said that. And now, before we finish, and and like we said, vaginal dryness, weight gain, my God, weight gain around the middle, shrinking, all yep. of these things that happen, and I'm yep. four foot ten, for God's sakes, I'm going to need a booster seat <laughs> soon. But women are looking towards, as you've given us all these great studies on HRT, Women are looking for some ideas for alternative treatments. We've heard about black cohosh, soy, which we're told before menopause not to eat so much soy because it's got estrogen and phenoestrogels, you know, and, and could increase our risk of breast cancer. Well, now that we're estrogen deficient, do we go back to eating tofu? Uh, you know, miso, fermented products. Give us some alternative things that we can try. Sure. Um, I think as far as soy, I think soy is fine. And indeed, one of the questions about soy is, yes, it is a phytoestrogen. There's no question about that. But many people think that actually soy acts more like tamoxifen than it does like estrogen. That indeed, it's a very weak estrogen and may sort of what we call block estrogen receptors from being bothered by stronger estrogens. So that's actually one of the thoughts about soy. So, you know, so, I mean, again, you don't want to go crazy and eat, two, you know, two pounds of tofu tonight. But, you know, soy in moderation is certainly reasonable. Um, certain formulations can be helpful. I mean, for example, Black Cohosh, there's a brand out there called Remy Femin. Part of the reason I think people need to be skeptical in the U.S. is that, unfortunately, some of our herbal preparations are not too well supervised, as you know. <laughs> and, yeah. and, indeed, uh, that's why I tend to like the Remy Femin, which is the German preparation on the Black Cohosh. They're a little more thorough on their uh, plant products and herbal products. Um, there's a product from Sweden called Darelazin, which is a pollen extract, which is, again, fairly supervised product, seems to have some relief for hot flashes. So there are some products out there which seem to help. And, of course, you know, some simple things like layered dressing. You know, if you're sweating a lot, you know, wear, wear a sweater, but wear it on, over a shell so that if you're getting really hot, you can pull the sweater off and still have some clothes on. So simple things like that, or as we talked about with sleeping, keeping the room cool, particularly for the first four hours. Um, if you keep your room cool, Get, get a dual-control uh, electric blanket because we don't want your partner to freeze. Yeah, that's <laughs> what's happened in my house. My cold. partner's freezing. And we had really cold yeah. weather in Chicago recently, and, and I was loving yep. the bedroom at night because our heat wasn't I'll working well. And he wasn't digging it at all. <laughs> He's like, it's freezing in here. So, so yeah, that's very yeah, good advice yeah. right there. 
So those are good things and easy things to do. And I don't know if we want to get into the vaginal dryness or we want to do that at another time. But for example, yeah. that's, that's a common problem. It tends to be a little later. The hot flashes tend to be more annoying early. They tend to get better over the course of time. Whereas the dryness, although it can be problematic early, can get tends to get worse over the course of time. But there are over-the-counter remedies there as well. I mean, a product, for example, like Replens um, is readily available at, you know, CVS, Walmart, whatever. It's a vaginal moisturizer, and you can scoot it in the vagina two, three times a week, and it'll uh, give you a reasonable amount of moisture down there. So there are things that one can do, you know, on your own. And that's really good advice, you know, because women do have sexual concerns as far as, and that would be a whole other show, libido, and whether there's a female Viagra, and vaginal dryness, and just self-esteem, you know, you feel bloated, you feel like crap, and you do not feel attractive, so that's the furthest thing from your mind. And so wrap it up for us. I would like your best advice about going through this phase, this change of our lives, and, and reiterating, Dr. Minkin, that's, that women can still get pregnant while they're going through menopause because that's Ab- something that... Absolutely. You know, or, or you sexually transmitted diseases, for that matter. And in that population, they think, oh, I'm not, I don't have to worry about this anymore. But wrap it up for us with your really best advice about going through menopause in a reasonably healthy way so that we don't... Mm-hmm want to pull our hair out or beat our spouses or, as you say, kick the dog. We don't (laughs) want to do any of those things. So help us out with the mood swings and all of these feelings that we're having. Well, the first thing I'm going to encourage folks to do is go visit my website, madamovery.com, and we go into all these things in a little more depth. So have some fun watching, watching the videos and reading some of the the, the written stuff there because we go into these things in greater depth. I think what you do, Melanie, as far as encouraging women to exercise regularly, both the combination of aerobic and strength training is fabulous. It's fabulous for making us feel better. It's also great for our hearts and great for our bones. And we want to pay attention to all of those things. Proper nutrition. You know, although your body may sometimes feel like, I always say that the plant in Little Shop of Horrors there, Audrey, feed me, feed me. Don't feed it. You know, you just eat healthy foods as best you can because you're going to feel better. You know, you're definitely going to feel better. So, and have a little soy. It's fine. Soy is good for you. It'll be fine. So don't worry about eating too much on that score. So I think all of those things are really good for going through, you know, the transition time together. And again, you're having a problem. I think, again, one of my favorite things to, to really harp on is to have a good relationship with your health care provider. You know, somebody that you have a relationship is really helpful, whether it's your doc, your midwife, your nurse practitioner, be with somebody that you don't, and don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a silly question about somebody going through menopause. I mean, example, like some people get hot flashes that make their ears turn red and they're otherwise fine. I always refer to those as Mr. Spock hot flashes, but I hear about those regularly. It's not crazy. I mean, there are all sorts of things that, you know, can happen to people and it's certainly not going to be something crazy and you want to be with somebody that can help say, yeah, this is okay, or sometimes to say, no, no, we got to look into this because this is something that really is, you know, potentially an abnormality that we need to chase down. So I think you really want to be with somebody that's that's there. Also, the other thing that I would encourage women to do, there are support groups for menopausal women. Um, for example, there's a, a group that I've been a, an advisor for for years, a Prime Plus Red Hot Mamas. 
And many places have chapters of Red Hot Mamas. Many hospitals have chapters for women to get together and, you know, do things together and hear lectures and realize there are other folks going through what you're going through. And that's another a website that's out there is Red Hot Mamas um, with some, you know, interesting information on menopause and things that women are going through. And, of course, the other website that I really would be remiss if I didn't mention is the website of the North American Menopause Society, which is menopause.org. And there's a lot of really excellent information for women there and their partners to just need to learn about as far as what they're going through. So lots of good information out there. And if something sounds crazy that you you know you read on the web, it probably is crazy. <laughs> Try to Absolutely. go to a more reliable source. <laughs> Well, such great advice. Wow, you are just really a, a ball of energy and passion, and we can hear it. And if you lived in Chicago, you would be my doctor, although I do love my doctor. I've been with her since I'm 18, so we've kind of grown up together, she and I. But you are just so awesome, and people can read more about you at MadamOvery.com. It's Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. She'll be joining us again. So, ladies, if you have questions, feel free to send them in to RadioMD.com and ask us what you would like like to know or what you would like Dr. Minkin to answer for us. She is a Yale University School of Medicine physician. So, you know, this is quality information. You are getting it from the experts. And we want you to share this show, ladies. Share them with your friends. Men, you don't have to listen all the way through, but share them with the ladies that you love. And share these shows because that way we all learn together. And that's what this really is all about. And you can listen on iHeart or iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, but we want you to listen at RadioMD.com. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for tuning in, and stay well.